Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Covenant and kingdom is something that I love talking about. Um, through the pages of the Bible, these two mega themes that we've taken December to look at, to say um, all through the stories, these two, these two themes keep popping up as threads, almost like in uh, a loom of a quilt where you have the vertical threads and then you have the horizontal threads. They're woven all through the pages of the Bible, starting... Uh, you, can, you can see God on his rescue mission starting all the way back in Genesis 15 and 12 and then in 15 with Abraham calling somebody out to say, I'm doing something and I want you to follow me. And you haven't deserved it. You haven't done anything to earn it or to prove it, but I am doing something. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham and Sarah, and, and it will grow. It will grow and grow and grow. And people will walk in a relationship with me because of what I'm doing. And as you walk that out, it will get passed on. And we've looked at Abraham. We looked at Joseph. We looked at Moses. Then we took uh, kind of the Christmas season to look at Jesus. of uh, The birth of Jesus being the covenant coming here. God seeing us as a covenant partner and saying, if my partner is in trouble, I will come and I will help you. And Christmas is just the definition of a covenant partner coming to the rescue and helping those who are in trouble. Last week, Justin talked about Jesus' temptations and how he was able to battle back against temptations because he could stand in his identity. Not because he was clever, though he was. Not because he was really smart, though he was. Not because he could quote the Bible backwards and forward, and he did. Because he knew his identity. He could stand against temptation. And he passes that on to us. When we know our identity, we can stand against temptation. This morning, we're going to turn our eyes to the cross. And what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through as Jesus uh, nears the end of his life, he begins this journey to Jerusalem and he spends the last week of his life in Jerusalem. And there's so much going on. There's so much going on. The tension is building. And it's right for us to, to zoom in and focus. This is one of the most helpful things that was ever done for me in studying the Bible. And it was so simple. If you have a Bible, grab it real quick. And I want you to find Genesis 1. I want you to find Genesis 1 and 2. That's the creation account, right? That's Eden and God and Adam and Eve creating everybody. And I want you to hold Genesis 1 and 2 in your fingers like this. This covers a lot of time, right? Genesis 1 and 2. And then you could all, you go like the whole book of Genesis. It's 50 chapters. That, that covers thousands of years, right? And then you look into the whole rest of the Old Testament. This is another couple thousand years. And it's a good portion of the Bible, Right in here. And now you get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How much time does Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John cover? About 30 years, right? There's that much. 
So you've got this much beforehand covering thousands and thousands of years and this right here covering 30 years. What does that say to you? The closer the Bible gets to Jesus, the more detail God has for us. The closer the Bible gets to Jesus, the more God has to say, the more he's focusing in and centered. If you look after Jesus, this is the next a uh, couple decades following Jesus, and there's still a lot there. So to focus in on Jesus isn't to make light of the rest of the stuff. The focus on Jesus is to get to the crux, to get to the center of God's story, to say, what story are you telling? And I, I want to be able to give as much attention as God does, where he puts emphasis, I want to follow. Now Jesus, Jesus comes to like, the last week of his life, which is in the Gospels, sometimes as much as half of the Gospel happens in the last week of Jesus' life. You want to talk about attention to detail. This last week has a ton. If you look at Luke 19, as Jesus enters the city in Luke 19, verse 38, he's coming into Jerusalem and he's coming in riding on a donkey. This is Old Testament prophecy coming true. Is a king entering the city. And as he does, people recognize it. As he does, people are saying, this is our king. This is our king who's come to rescue us. And they're crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're crying out, Hosanna, which means save us. And they think he's coming to establish a physical here and now kingdom. And he could have. He could have. And if you go back to last week and remembering the temptations of the devil coming to Jesus and saying, look out over all of it. I can give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down to me. Jesus could have had it all right there and right then. Jesus, as he rode into the city, could have established an earthly kingdom right there. He had the power to do it. And yet he said, I'm doing something different. I'm not just establishing an earthly kingdom by force. I'm establishing a bigger kingdom that will have earthly effects. It will affect the way we do life. But it's not just here and now. It's not just temporary, and it won't ever fade away. And Jesus overcomes the temptation to let them make him their king in that moment because something greater is coming. And they couldn't have ever imagined that the death of Jesus would be his coronation, that the death of Jesus would be when he became truly king, when he sealed it. But that's what he's doing. If you go uh, and you follow the Gospel of Luke through that last week, you end up in Luke 22. And this last supper that he shares with his friends. In Luke 22, starting in verse 19, I want to walk through this, and then I'm going to skip forward into 2 Corinthians 5 to talk about um, what we do with this. In Luke 22, 19 and 20, Jesus is celebrating the Passover dinner. And it says in verse 19, he took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So they're celebrating Passover, and he makes Passover about him. You remember Passover. Passover happens all the way back in Exodus with Moses as he goes back to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Moses won't relent and he won't relent and he won't relent until finally the angel of death is summoned to say, I'm going to wipe out the firstborn so that I can get your attention so that everyone will know that God is king and I can save as many as come to me. And he says, I want you to kill a lamb, and I want you to spread the blood on your doorway. And when the angel of death comes by, he will pass over your house because he sees the blood of the lamb. And the people walked out through their doorways into freedom, and they passed under the blood. And Jesus says, Passover points to me. I want you to see that Passover points to me. And he says, and this is a new covenant. God had originally established a covenant with you, and you couldn't keep it. And I'm going to establish a new covenant. I'm fulfilling the covenant so that you can't break it. Not, it's not you can't keep it. This new covenant is you can't break it. I'm doing something that nobody can defeat. Jesus becomes the Passover lamb. So where the people walked out under the blood into freedom, that's what Jesus is doing. That's what Jesus is saying is coming. You will find freedom because my blood covers over you. Because the consequence that is on you, I will take. And you will walk out in freedom. If you want to apply this real quick, the question is, Have you recognized Jesus as your rescuer? Have you recognized Jesus as your Passover lamb, that the wrath of God would pass over you because of Jesus? You don't have to do anything about that. You You need to step into the covenant. That is to say, I believe that you came for me. And I want to stop establishing my own kingdom. I want to submit to your kingdom. I want to live in the covenant, in the sacrifice that you made. I recognize you as my rescuer. And I want to come to you for that. When you do that, you receive a covenant that you can't break. No matter how much you screw up, no matter how much I screw up, Jesus has me, and he has you, and he did it at Passover. He became Passover for us. It's remarkable then, as they celebrate the meal together, and you read in, uh, not in Luke, but in another gospel, that he takes off uh, his robe, he wraps the towel around his waist, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet, right? To say the greatest has to be the servant. And he starts to wash their feet, big, stinky feet, after walking uh, in sandals for miles down the road. And he takes a servant position, the leader Go servant on them. And then as they, lose, as, as they leave that dinner, they get into an argument. His disciples get into an argument about who's the greatest, about who's going to have the highest position in Jesus' kingdom. You're like, you don't get it. 
And so many times we don't get it. Like we accept Jesus and then we keep building our own kingdom. And we think uh, it moves into God bless my kingdom. God bless my agenda. God, you are here to bless me instead of me submitting myself to your kingdom. His guys didn't get them. And he, have a conversa- he has a conversation with them to say, I want you to understand what I just did. In Luke, he says, the greatest among you must be like the youngest. The youngest were not seen to have value. They couldn't produce. They couldn't offer. They couldn't give out anything. They were the lowest on the totem pole. And he says, I want you to be like that. I want you to serve. I want you to give your life. And he's doing it on his way to the cross. Right? He's not doing it like from this high and mighty place. Saying, I want you to live in my kingdom and I want you to give me everything. He's doing it from a place of saying, I'm on my way to give everything. And I want you to follow me there. And they get to the... He actually says in this conversation... He said, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. You hear that? Like he's giving you a kingdom. But it's not a kingdom of climbing the ladder. It's not a kingdom of uh, earthly glory. It's a kingdom of the cross. It's a kingdom of getting down on your knees and getting dirty with people and serving. And Jesus says, just like my father gave me this kingdom. I'm giving you this kingdom. I want you to follow me into it. And they get to the garden in Luke 22, verse 41. Starting in 41, it says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus is in the garden, and he's, I think the battle is won right here. He's doing battle between his will and God, bless my kingdom. God, would you get behind my will? He's saying, I don't want to do this. He's saying, and yet it's not about my will. Father, this is about your will. This is about me giving up my rights. This is about me giving up my agenda and getting on your agenda and following through with it. And I want my life to be right in line with the Father's will. And it happens in a garden. And I love the way the Bible uses imagery to convey points. If you look at Jesus' prayer and battle over will in the garden, and you go back all the way to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and the battle over will in the garden, you'll see that in the first garden, Adam and Eve failed because they took their will and they said, we want our kingdom. We want to do it our way. We want to live according to what we want. And man, this fruit looks good. And God said this is out of bounds. But it looks so good. And I want it. And I think you're holding out on me, God. And I'm going to take it. And the battle is lost. And God says, 
the consequence from building your own kingdom is you step out of relationship with me. And the wrath of God comes on you. You will lose your life, both physically and spiritually. And God sends them out of the garden because he says, if you keep living forever in spiritual death, that's hell. The garden would have become hell for them. God kicks them out to say, I don't want you to live forever dying. I want you to experience this separation. And someday, I want you to come back. And I'll be doing it. And an angel stands guard with a sword at the garden, blocking as much as they would fight to get back in. Because they were looking, again, I think, to build their kingdom. Build whatever they could build. And God says, I want to block you from that. And now in this garden, the battle for the will is won. And Jesus says, it's not about what I want. It's about, Father, what you want. And about me getting on your agenda. The angels could have come and rescued him, right? The angel that blocked the garden could now have come and uh, cleared the way for Jesus. Could have rescued him. Even on the cross, the angels could have rescued him. Jesus says, like, I, I could, at the sound of my voice, the legions would come and would deliver me. And yet he doesn't call on them to deliver. And when Judas comes with the whole troop, Peter says, I don't, I don't want to do it. And he tries with force, he tries with force to protect Jesus. And he cuts off a dude's ear. And Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom gets established. It's not by force. And he, he picks up the guy's ear and he puts it back on. He says, good. So I'm doing something different. I'm doing something different. This is about me submitting to the Father's will for our good and his glory. Whose kingdom are you pursuing? Which garden do you live in? Because the first garden looks real good until you go to grab the fruit that is your own kingdom and says, I want to be secure. I want to advance. I want to grow. God bless my agenda. And the second garden looks real painful. And it is. And it's about me putting down myself. It's about you putting down yourself, not in a, I don't have self-worth or I don't have value, but to say, I need to submit my will to the Father's. I need to stop asking God to bless my agenda, and I need to start asking God what his agenda is. Which garden do you live in? Whose kingdom are you pursuing? Move from God bless my agenda and fighting with God. Give up. Let him lead. He is not a wicked tyrant. You will find, Jesus says, when you, when you give up your life, you will truly find life. That's the promise. Is we don't give up and then become empty. We give up, we empty ourselves, and we get filled in a way that we could never have imagined, we could never have done for ourselves. Give up your agenda in 2018 and get on God's agenda.
figure out what that next step is of sacrificing your agenda and going and following God. And Jesus walks out of the garden and he walks into a wicked 24 hours of a mock trial, beatings that lead him to carrying a wooden cross up a hill to his murder. Jesus walked to his death as the Passover lambs were being walked out and sacrificed. Right? The whole Jewish community was taking lambs to the slaughter to celebrate God, God's wrath passing over them. And at the same time, as all those lambs are being killed, the Lamb of God, Jesus, is walking up the hill and he is being killed as God's covenant to us. I will do it. Jesus cries out on the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? And this is all about substitution and victory. God, why have you forsaken me? And he's substituting himself for us. They say, they owe a great debt. They have the wrath of God sitting on them. And I want to take that and I want to put it on me. Remember way back, way back with Abraham, how God originally cut the covenant. He said, I'm going to cut apart these animals. Death will happen and we'll walk through this corridor of blood together. And Abraham walked through it and then God himself walked through to say, we are now one. We are now united. If you're ever in trouble, I will come for you. Jesus is walking through that corridor of blood. He's saying, you're in trouble and I will come for you and it will cost me everything. Jesus takes our sin on him. And really smart theological people call this substitutionary atonement, which means Jesus makes us one by God by substituting himself for us. Atonement is like at one mint, right? Jesus makes us one with God by substituting himself. And then, even though it looks like the darkest night and Satan thinks he's won, it's actually victory. Jesus calls out, it is finished. That means you don't have to do it. Jesus did it. Jesus said, he didn't say, it has started. Now do a good job and do your part. I just gave everything I have. What did he say? He said, it is finished. I've done everything that the covenant requires, and now you can't break it. Then 1 Corinthians 15 has this glorious, grand reflection because he doesn't stay dead, right? Jesus rises from the dead, defeating death itself. And 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of the at the end of a really long chapter that's thick and beautiful and wonderful, Paul taunts death itself. Paul says, death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? My Jesus secured it. My Jesus did it. My Jesus finished it. And we have victory in Jesus. God establishes a covenant and we don't keep it. Jesus brings a new covenant that doesn't rely on us. He does it. 
Now, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? If all of the Bible comes to this point on the cross, say God says he will not quit, he will not give up, and he will not let us go, and it comes to the point on the cross that says, my covenant with you will last forever. Jesus makes us one with God by substituting himself for us. What do we do with that? 2 Corinthians 5 is this really rich reflection on the cross. And I want to walk through it as application for us this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14. He says, Paul writes, The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The covenant is about being one, right? It's about being one with Jesus. So if you're one with Jesus, his identity lands on you. His identity and his standing transfers to you. So when you're reading through the New Testament, when you're reading through uh, this verse here, and it says, because one died, all died, that means if you're in Jesus, you died. What's the gift of that? The wages of sin is death, right? And the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. If Jesus died for all, and if I'm in Jesus, and that means I died, that means the wages of sin being death has already been paid. Has already been paid. I died. I died on the cross. You, in Jesus, died on the cross. Your debt is paid. Your death is done in Jesus. Because you're one with Jesus, his identity applies to you. And then verse 15 says, he died for all. Not just he died for me and he died for you and me. He died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now this gets to the so what. I died with Jesus. If you're in the covenant, you died with Jesus. So what? He says so that those who live, if you're living today, If you're living today, he did it so that you might no longer live for your own kingdom. But you could live into his kingdom. Into his. If someone has given their life for you, the only appropriate response is to give everything you have back. And it's not to pay back a debt. It's not not to earn it. Or to make it good, to say like, oh, I can't, I can't, I'll just give whatever I have because I'll try and make good on this. But it's an appropriate response to say, if you've given everything from me, how can I say thank you and then just go on with life with insurance now? Jesus is bigger than that. 
the only appropriate response is to give your life in return. So Jesus gave you all of his life. The only reasonable response is to give it back. You live for him. Verse 16 and 17 go on. They say, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, like they got it wrong. They had this argument about who would be the best, about riding in a donkey and wanting to make him king. This was the kingdom they saw coming. Say, so even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now you might look at yourself and say, I have a relationship with Jesus, but I can't really say that the new has come. I can't really say that the old is gone. And what, I, what we need to do here is dance, dance in the struggle, in the already and not yet. You know how the birds sing before the sunrise? That can, if you're trying to sleep, that can really aggravate you. If you're up, it can be really beautiful, right? Birds sing before the sunrise. When the birds sing, what do you know is inevitable? The day is starting. The sun is rising, right? It's coming. Now, they start singing in the dark. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus started singing in the dark. And Jesus transfers to you a new identity in the dark. And it's not fully in the light yet. One day, it will be. It's inevitable because of what he did. He secured it, and all of creation is moving toward it. And so if you're still feeling like, I'm still holding on to this old muck, this old life, that's all of us. And little by little, we can put it down. We don't have to walk in it anymore, while at the same time recognizing my identity is no longer stuck there. My identity is no longer in the old life. My identity and my standing with God is there, is with him now. I have a new life, and it's coming. Inevitably, dawn will come, and, and the light will be seen in full. While we struggle, we know this beyond beyond any struggle, beyond any temptation, what cannot be taken from us is that we are loved. We are loved right where we are. That we can have peace in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of a chaotic world, in the midst of our own stuff, we can still have a peace inside that God gives to us that nobody can take away. The eternal starts now and it can't be robbed from us Paul says in verse 18 then all of this all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself that he sees us who are far away and he brings us to him he atones for us at one minute the atonement we are made one this is all from God God made us one with himself again in Christ. He becomes our substitute. He becomes our representative. He stands in our place. And Paul continues the end of verse 18. He says, 
And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God, through Christ, reconciled us, and now he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. He gives us, the Father gives us, exactly the same task he gave his Son. Exactly the same ministry he gave Jesus. Why? Because we're his kids. Jesus was the Son of God, standing in the covenant, getting an identity from God. What that does to you is it makes you a son or a daughter of God. If Jesus was the Son of God and he stood there and he had the, uh, the ministry of reconciliation, we're given that as sons and daughters. We get the same job Jesus had. Verse 19 says, That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself. Who is it for? It's for me. And it's for you. But it doesn't stop there. It's for the whole world that we have to be busy about. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It's for them. It's for the world. And God, I love the word that he uses. He entrusts to us. God trusts us with this ministry. Isn't that incredible? God trusts you. God trusts you. And he gives it to you to say, if you want to, be, if you want to live in my kingdom, if you want to be on my agenda, reconciliation is what it's about. Verse 20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for God, making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God gives us an identity and he gives us a responsibility. And Paul pleads. He says, we're ambassadors making this appeal. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you are not reconciled to God, if you are not living in the covenant, if you are not living in faith in Jesus, you, this morning, you, I plead with you, be reconciled. Come to Jesus. Come to the open arms that he has for you. No matter how much sin, no matter how much stain, no matter how much shame you're carrying, Jesus has his arms out. And he's ready to give you an identity. And the moment you step into that identity, the old is gone. Your identity is changed forever. And as a son or daughter of the king, you have an identity and you have a responsibility that follows. Follows your identity. He became sin, it says. For our sake, verse 21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. Like he didn't have the disease of sin and he didn't have any of the symptoms. Like chicken pox. Like he didn't have it and he didn't have any of the spots to go with it. And God took him who knew no sin, and he became sin for us. That means God gave Jesus this, the, the disease of sin. 
and it killed him. And now we get the cure. The cure is in his blood. And we get a transfusion through Jesus. The disease that killed him, now because of him, we get life. He became sin, and we become sons and daughters. That is not a fair substitute, is it? He became sin, and we become sons and daughters. That's exactly what happens on the cross. Jesus did it all. The covenant is sealed. And through all of the pages of the Bible, covenant and kingdom, relationship and responsibility, this, this is what's woven through all of the pages. God comes. God seals. God substitutes. And God gives us victory. It helps us to orientate ourselves not just, not just how we read scripture, but how we live our life. Covenant, covenant gives you value. Kingdom gives you vision. Covenant builds your identity. Kingdom builds your responsibility. Let's pray. Jesus, you, you rescued us. You made a covenant with us that we couldn't keep. And instead of walking away, you did our part. You died in our place. And you rose that we might have life. I, I love reflecting on the fact that because you died, I died. Because you died, we died. That the curse, the curse has already been poured out. The punishment has already been given. It's gone. And it landed on you. We didn't have to take it. I pray that you would open our eyes to see your love in this sacrifice. I pray that you would Help us hear you calling us into the covenant. And I pray that you would do it in such a way that our hearts would beat to be ambassadors for your kingdom. That we wouldn't just hoard it. That we wouldn't just sit on it. But that we would turn in the identity and value that you give us. And that we would seek to be reconcilers. That we would seek to look out at the people in our world and give them what you gave us. Jesus, we celebrate communion this morning. Help us recognize you as the Passover lamb. Help us to recognize you as the substitute that death passes over us because of you. We finished this morning, Jesus, worshiping you.